Welcome to the Observer Effect, a podcast of travel stories. Each week we hope to bring you a conversation with someone we meet overseas and at least one good story. Episode 86 of Forlorn Emigre, Guantanamo, where Lenka can't talk about. Well, that title pretty much speaks for itself, but I will just add my customary quotation. Alenka's story put me in mind of the explorer, John L. Stevens, who scoured the Yucatan for Maya temples 200 years ago and wrote of one particularly remote site. All the interest we had felt in the place was gone, and we only wanted to get away. The first question is, can you describe what you look like for the people listening. What I look like. Who are they listening to? Oh my goodness. Um, yeah, you're asking me to describe my, who I am. Well, what, your appearance what I first. Like. My appearance. Yeah. Um, I think I look like a Neanderthal. I was just looking at myself. <laughs> and, and it makes me realize that maybe Neanderthals aren't, aren't uh, quite, as, quite as foreign or, or far back in ancestry as... <laughs> As, as scientists once once thought. <laughs> um, what, what are you the, referring I, to? I'm actually I, mean, I, I have deep eyebrows, so I have a <laughs> okay. I have deep eyebrows, and I was looking in the mirror this morning, and I'm just um, um, without trying to sound all formal for that, you know, I was looking in the mirror, and I was like, I have really deep eyebrows. My dad had deep eyebrows. He was from Holland, um, and uh, and I looked at him, I just noticed because I was looking at some pictures of myself, you know, back when I was in twenties. And my kids were saying, you looked really young. And I said, wow, I did look really young. And, you know, back then I thought, I'm just an average guy. And I looked and said, I don't think I look bad, actually. So I looked in the mirror this morning. I was like, whoa, I've got really deep eyebrows. i got wrinkles. Oh, no. So <laughs> not a lot. Not like, you know, yeah. not the type that drag on the ground where you step on them and trip on them. But, uh... <laughs> You're the second person I've inter- interviewed to describe themselves as a Neanderthal. Is that <laughs> right? Isn't That's, that crazy? Yeah, well, I, yeah, I know. I'm not super tall, but I do have deep eyebrows. I have deep set eyes, and I don't think it's a bad thing. It's not one of those striking features that that people that people look at and go, well, you know. But it's yeah, just it's not ugly. For if sure. you know, if I if 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 uh, people would look at me that way, um, I I you know I have a beard, right? And so in describing myself, some people always say, oh, it looks like you're getting a little gray in your beard on your chin. I said, no, I dye it gray to give myself the distinguished look. <laughs> and then uh, and, and, and they'll look at me from this angle and go, oh, look, well, this guy for 54 isn't looking bad. He's got some hair on his head. And then they look at the top of my head, and they brown themselves in the, blind, in the bald spot. And I go, oh, don't worry, I shaved that for religious reasons. So <laughs> anyway. Well, that is a great description. So the second question okay. is, can you describe where we are now? We are in Spain, in a garden, in a little terrace garden in Spain. It's nice. It's got some jasmine. Okay. Say that again. That? Some fountain sounds probably being picked up here. That's right. It's a gorgeous fountain. This is, it really is a cool fountain. Um, I, I love, this is what I love about Spain. You know, they, they have these, they call them azulejos, right? The, 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 the tile work that they have. Um, and it's beautiful, it's blue, it reflects the, the light blues, the different hues of blues. Actually, I see three different hues there, and, and it reflects that the sky, which is often so blue. And I love all the plants that are around. Here it is, January, and we're looking at pomegranates, jades, jasmines, um, 
And everywhere in the city, the oranges are blooming. Oh, and the oranges and are gorgeous. They're just dropping on the street They're everywhere. Dropping, yeah. yeah. The best oranges. I'm seriously, the, the oranges here are amazing. Like, if you can buy fresh oranges, well, buy them, right? Oh. And these ones on the streets are decorative, so if you right, taste exactly. them, they're, they're pretty bitter. They're not good. But, but yeah, yeah, I mean, I, I, this, is, this is, it's a courtyard, and it's really beautiful, and the building that it sits in is not so beautiful so right you know it, it's and typical city buildings you know just a lot of stories with a lot of windows and a lot of cement but yeah, there's a dentist office huge posters of someone drilling teeth <laughs> like <laughs> with a big smile on her face it's like yeah this is awesome i, I think i want to go to that dentist yeah. holding someone's hand as if yeah. to comfort them yeah because they'll need that after getting drilled on and so. uh, I have to mention we're here at Iglesia Bautista Fe. Yeah, uh, Iglesia Bautista Fe, a church service here. We yeah. actually met here two years ago. Yeah. And it, so this interview is a long time in the works. Yeah, so I'm that's very, right. I'm elated yeah, you talk right to now. Me. You, you, well, that's cool. Yeah, I mean, you, you t we talked about this last time you guys were here. and Yeah. But I didn't really understand what you were doing then either, you know. I was like, yeah, sure, okay, if you want, but it was totally up to you to pursue it. <laughs> yeah, 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 yeah. No, no, it's, I, I left. It's, yeah. it's on me. So. Okay, no, it's great, um, though. But it's just nice that yeah. that's how time works, you know. Yeah. You, you do go back and you get second chances. Yeah. You know? So, um, why are you here? How did you end up in Seville? Okay, this is, you or know, it, you're, you're, or, yeah. it's an interesting... It's a really interesting story. I work for Department of Defense. Mm -hmm. And working for Department of Defense, I was in Cuba for four years in a place where the only way we could get medical attention, if we needed it, we just had two young kids, and the only way we could get the medical attention was to fly off, off island, is what we called it. And so we had one flight a week, but if, say, if you just needed a regular doctor's checkup, you would have to take an entire week's worth of leave to go get that doctor's checkup, which may only take 30, 30 minutes. If you had emergency care, there were two ways you could do it. You could get, either get on an FBI flight, and so they would, they would let you on those flights, and then you didn't have to worry about passports or any documentation. You just get on, you get off, nobody asks questions. Um, or you get on a... Um, or you get on a helicopter and you have to get um, special permission to fly over Cuban airspace. And so whenever you heard a helicopter, you knew that that was a big deal. So anyway, um, that somebody was really seriously sick. So um, it's a very unusual story. So, um, so anyway, I used up, because I'm working Department of Defense, I used up so much leave just taking regular routine baby checkups and all that um, um, for my kids. Um, that we and, and government had had been limited on their money, so we weren't able to get what we call transfers to other countries to do to do the job that we're doing for the same for the for the same Department of Defense, and um, and so we had gone through our union to say, look, we we need to talk to the big bosses and say, you got to do something. We got We're going to use up all our leave, and if we get in a real emergency situation, we'll have no leave. And we can't take, you know, we really can't take care of our families, and and this just isn't right. Or we'll use up our end up using other leave, and, and it's just just not right to keep us here this long. Because normally people would get out of out of Cuba, they'd stay a year, they'd go. Um, here we were four years, and we loved it there. The kids were born there, and um, one of the kids was born there, and and um, so they really loved it. Um, so I had been taught. We'd been going to the church on base in Cuba. We'd been going to the church in, in Cuba. And the pastor asked me one day, um, he says, when you pray, what do you pray for? And I said, I said, well, 
I said, you know, the thing is, my mother's been sick for 15 years, and I pray for her, and for her to be able to walk again and all that kind of stuff. And, and I said, I just don't think God really answers prayers. And, and I was just being honest, you know. And he says, he says well, you know, I, I think God does answer prayers. Maybe you should, you know, just pray for something sometime. And I said, fine, I will. So I would always ride my bike back and forth from work. And one day I was riding down the street not long after that conversation, a couple of weeks after that. And I'm saying, God, I'm not trying to tempt you, test you, or do anything else, but we've been in Cuba for four years, and we really do need easier access to, to, um, to medical care. And we, they don't have medical problems, but, you know, just routine checkups for kids are important when you're a parent. And we... Um, you know, so if there is any way we can get out of here, even though they're not doing tra- Department of Defense is not doing transfers again, um, then we want to we want to get out of here. And so, you know, if you can open a door and and um, just I'm just asking you to do that. So anyway, two weeks later, and this was what was weird about it, two weeks later, um, our superintendents call us up from the main Department of Defense office, and they say. We, we realize um, you guys have been having problems with using up your medical leave. And so we are going to do, we're not doing transfer rounds for the whole world this year, but we are going to do a Cuba-only transfer round, and we are going to let you pick where you want to go. What? <laughs> and they never get to do that. Never get Teachers never get to, to pick where they're going to go. That's just, you know, you take the job, and if you, and uh, they, they offer you, and they tell you, and when they send you the, the offer letter, like, we're transferring you to Germany. If you decline this job, you risk losing your job altogether, right? And it's just a letter like that. So they let us pick, and so I had, um, I want my kids to have a chance, and so I thought Spanish was really important for them, and so, so I just asked God, I said, open the door, if you can, for us to go to Spain. And two weeks later, that door was open, and I got to pick Spain, so we ended up going there. And here's what's <laughs> fascinating about it. It was pretty amazing. So it was like, wow, this is not the circumstantial. See you later. Bye. <laughs> so we um so anyway what's really fascinating about it is Maron de la Frontera is where we live now. So I went back to um, Holland in Den Haag uh, to to look at my family history and it turns out that one of my family crests has a moor on it from Morocco, right? Oh and Maron de la Frontera is where the, the frontier between the, the uh, Islamic faith and the Christians um, held territory because there's mountains right there. That's the border of that, of that. Now I know that back in the 1300s or 1400s in that, in that time frame that the Dutch had, they had controlled all this land. In fact, Madrid used to be the capital of Holland. Right, mm. so I knew that, that that had happened. So the Dutch were as far south as Maron de la Frontera, where the mountains um, made the distinction between the, where the Christians and, and, and Muslims controlled. And so I'm going, I'm looking at my family crest, and I'm going, "There's a more on my family crest," and I'm in Maron de la Frontera, and I have a Christian heritage because the other, the other um, family crest, which comes from the province of Ravensfeld, from, um, from my, from my other, from my Dutch relatives, has a has a, a cross on it, and it's kind of like the royal cross because they were duke and duchesses in, in Holland. And, and um, so I realized, I made the connection that I have gone back, it's 2000 now, I've gone back 700 years in time to the exact location where, where my relatives once lived and worked and served and ruled and that different thing. 
So it's really fascinating. I had no idea when I picked Marón de la Frontera as, as the base I would work at that, that I was going so deep and far back in my roots. So wow. why am I here? Wow. I, it's, who knows why I'm here? I prayed, I ended up well, here, I got the picket. I, my history's here, there's a story to tell. It's pretty cool. And what are you praying for now? <laughs> That's what I want to know. Yeah, I know. Yeah, That's it's wonderful. A, That's it's amazing. Really, it's an amazing story. So what now... A blessing for your family. Yeah, yeah. I mean, now I, I, I just pray for... I realize that it's not so much praying for, like God isn't my genie in the bottle, but... Sure. Um, but these days, what I've learned, um, that if I'm going to spend eternity in heaven with God, and I'm supposed to have this personal relationship with God, that it might do me some good to talk to God once in a while, right? So this is my motivation for praying, that I'm simply opening lines of communication and talking to God because I need to do that. Is you know, like I'm not just here to see if I sin or don't, you know, if I if I make the right choice or not and end up in hell or not. I'm here to have a relationship with God, to learn things, um, to serve, to to be to show passion kindness to, to lead people to the truth. There's a lot of reasons for being here, yeah. beyond what my job has brought me here for. So, it's opened a lot of doors being here. And do you miss any part of Guantanamo? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, that's for sure. <laughs> yeah. But if I told you, I'd have to kill you. Um, it's one of those top secret things. Um, it's, it's, it was amazing for us, because and our kids miss it, too, because... Um, Life was super simple, mm. and the simplicity of life was great. You wanted to go to the beach or scuba diving, you were always one or two minutes away, literally one or two minutes away from it. You'd get put your, throw your scuba gear in, in the back of the truck, and drive down to the beach, which was two minutes away, don your scuba gear, down under the water, daytime, nighttime, whatever. I loved night di- diving, it was, it was really cool. <laughs> or sunrise diving was always cool. Um, so we miss that simplicity, and the kids miss it. You know, what are we going to do today? Go to the beach or the swimming pool? Yeah, let's go to the beach. There's stuff to find. It was that simple. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> it's really cool. Uh, and so I'm just curious about living in that place. What is it like uh, confronting the controversy of it? Does it touch your life in any way when you live there? Do, do you know um, what I mean? Like, I do know what you mean. There's a, there's a lady... Um, a lady reporter that goes down that she has free access because the government wants to keep everything transparent and she asks a lot of questions that that the people who work there are not allowed to answer um, and so there are actually mm, there are actually things I have to sign I've had to sign working for the Department of Defense that don't allow me to talk about a lot of this stuff yeah but um, but I can tell you it's it's um, it's fascinating having gone to the camps where they, you know, where they first kept them when George Bush was president, and and um, having gone to the uh, the camps afterward. It's fascinating learning about the they call them unprivileged belligerents, not prisoners. Um, but it's fascinating going there and seeing how their lives live and seeing how the the military. Um, we have, we actually got to sit in with the FBI um, on a couple of different occasions and and sitting in the court cases and things like that. So um, it's fascinating just seeing how all that, how those operations go and, and um, you know, how they do things, how the, the protocols for, for that and just learning about these people's lives and, and going, wow, this is, these are, they're smart people. Yeah. They're really, really smart people. They're so smart, in fact, that, that um, the prisoners um, 
or the, the guards that, that take care of them, they always have to have two guards, never just one, not because of a, uh, being overthrown strength-wise, but because, be, because being overthrown mentally is easy for the prisoners to, to do to the guards. So they always make sure that one guard is there to talk sense into the other mm-hmm. so the other doesn't fall in love with them or whatever else, you know, sort of mental games that, that these um, unprivileged belligerents will play. So it's really a fascinating um, aspect of, of um, being on that base with its current mission. Yeah. And so the kids you would teach in the school would be like the children of the guards or oh, that kind of thing? not so much. Or there's just a no, whole no, administrative no. apparatus a, there? Yeah. Yeah, there's um, there's there's a navy component there, which are not generally not the guards, and then there's the there's the um, combined forces. Those are usually the single people that get get a 15 month assignment or a 12 month assignment there, and and they don't they don't bring their families normally. It's contractors, and there's a lot of things to keep a, a base up and running. That's the oldest base that the United States has. It was established in 1898. Oh, wow. So it's been you know, by Teddy Roosevelt, nonetheless. And so, um, you know, he, um, so it's been there for a long time. Its mission has changed over over the years. So, you know, it's known today as, uh, as a place where they keep people rightfully or not rightfully. Um, but it hasn't always been that way. One time it was a refugee camp for the Haitians. At one time it was nothing more than a culling station. At one time it was a... It, it was a proposed location for um, for protecting the U.S. from the Cuban uh, during the Cuban Missile Crisis under the Kennedy administration. So it just changes from time to time. As a history teacher, you must just eat that up. Like, I, what I, a fascinating place to get well, to yeah, practice. I mean, I yeah. As a, as somebody who who loves history, I've only loved history because I, I I've learned there's there's more to history than than um, just dates. There's there's real stories, and when I think about my own story. And how I'm back in the town that 700 years ago my ancestors were either subjects in or ruling. Um, it, it's fascinating to me yeah. to, to go. This is the beautiful thing about history: getting to go back and, and understanding the all the events that took place to to bring me full circle to a place I never would have expected to have been. I mean, I had no idea when I went there when I got here to Spain that I was going to any, any place of significance in my historical life. You know, so. Pretty, yeah. pretty interesting. Yeah, but Cuba has a fascinating history, and uh, and I don't think I seek it out, but I'm generally interested in things. That's what makes me a teacher, you know. And that sort of thing, I get excited about new knowledge all the time. I never get excited about dates, though. <laughs> 1611, Prince Bonnie Charles. I don't really care what date it was. I just want to know how did it affect where we are today. You know? <laughs> Absolutely. <laughs> Okay, so here's the big question. Has moving around changed you? And I, I recall that you grew up in Alaska, is that yeah. right? Well, yeah, I mean, I, so. I, I was born in Holland. Um, and oh, then, I didn't realize that, okay. Yeah, I okay. was actually born in Holland. My first language in, was in actually, the Hague. No, 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 in El Basadam, which is, okay. um, you know, the Kinderdijk area where the, where the windmills are. Okay. Yeah, um, they have, it's on the Lek River. There's a bunch of windmills there. It's part of the Dutch national heritage, and and there's signs there that say it's forbidden to travel there. But but actually, if you're a member of a club, then you can actually walk over the fences. They have steps that go over the fences. And, you know that whole. It's a beautiful area. Um, but that's where I was born, and I go back to my sister is actually um, buried there, and and my family and I will be going there someday, um, just to. You know, see my sister's grave to go see the the windmills and all that kind of stuff, and and um, so there it, it'll be it'll be pretty cool. But I was born there, spoke German as my first language, moved to the United States up in Vermont, 
And then um, my mother married an American military man, and so we ended up traveling around that way. And um, and then when I got old enough to leave home, which was 17, I went to Alaska, and I was like, I'm gonna wow. do something different. I wanna I wanna <laughs> fish and camp and all these things I love to do, being outdoors. So I just love the outdoors. Um, and that's how I ended up in in Alaska. And then of course I got um, I met Ryan. We went off to England together and started working for the Department of Defense. And from there, you know, I've made a career of this. Well, so it's a huge question, but yeah. how has all this travel shaped you, do you think? Well, yeah, I know it, I know it has. I have, a, I have a lot broader perspective about things. When, as an example, um, there, there are things I believe about... Um, about world religions or about politics, about mm, controversial topics such as drinking or, or women cutting hair or women covering heads or whatever the part of the, the world you're in where these things become controversial and hot, issue, um, hot issues. Um, there's things I believe that, that um, or that, that, that I have relatives that believe that they're either right or wrong or this or that, um, that I see totally differently where I don't knowing based based on the person I, I will either share what I really believe or I won't share at all because I realize that people are the cultures are different um, cultural norms are different and and if you're coming from one single town in, in mid you know the, um, what do you call it the, the middle part of America I forget the Midwest um, if you're coming from one single part of the Midwest and little town you have these closed ideas about how life should be and what's normal in life. And you may say, you know, if, um, no, this is the way it always was, when, when if you really studied history, you know this wasn't the way it always was. And I'll give you an example. Um, Americans um, will tell you if you want to be patriotic, then, um, then you only speak English. But, but I happen to know that from traveling that, uh, and, and living here in Spain, that first of all, English wasn't the first language in America. There were many Native American languages first, and then once the Spanish got to America, they they had they had um, occupied 33% of that country, and 33% of the country was speaking Spanish long before the English ever came over, and the Spanish left because there was no gold, no more gold to be found. So they left, and the English said, "Hey, this is an opportunity for us." And and so the stories become very different when I think about. Um, and so much of it is tied to history. When I think about the first Thanksgiving, I don't think about um, I don't think about 1621. I think about 1526. Um, when I um, when I talk about pilgrims and getting off the Mayflower, I, I think I think hijack theory. <laughs> they hijacked. Why would they have a map that they got blown off course exactly to 625 miles north of where they were supposed to go? And why did they get off if they sat in the boat for for three weeks, why did they finally get off? And I figured out it's because they ran out of beer. They're making a beer run. They knew the wheat fields were unoccupied because the Native Americans already died due to the disease. So, I, so I think very differently mm-hmm. about <laughs> about history, about <laughs> about um, life, and and so if I say these things, I say them in a silly way sometimes. And when I celebrate Thanksgiving with my family and we have people over, I like to share a little of that history, but I'm very careful about how I do that. Um, I just there's things that 
that I was taught that was wrong coming, um, living in, in my family that I realized, wow, for instance, Christians um, in America, many of them believe that drinking is wrong, drinking alcohol is plain out wrong. And then there's an the argument that Jesus turned water into wine and, and there's this whole, um, people go back and forth whether it's right or wrong. But then I had some really good friends in Switzerland and very mature friends um, in terms of age. And they, and this guy was, I'd never known him when he lived here in Switzerland, for, for many years, I just knew him from Alaska, and he was a, um, he was a, um, I didn't know this about him, but he had vineyards, because these vineyards were handed down to him through many generations, in fact, several hundred years, and I went to his house, I visited him and, and his wife in his house um, in Switzerland, in Oban, and, and I was like, oh, this is an amazing house, like, are you guys rich, or what? what is this? And he said, no, this has been handed down through many generations. I was like, this is amazing. I went to his library, and I saw books from the emperor um, of Japan in his library, and I was like, this is amazing. I, I, I can't believe this. And then he said, would, would you like me to take you a tour, on a tour of, of um, some of the land we have in our family? And I said, well, that'd be great. So I went out, and he meets his cousin, Jacques, or whoever his cousin's name was, and he's out in a vineyard. And I said, do you have vineyards? I said, don't you make wine out of vineyards? Yes, would you like to come up to the mountains? Uh, we have a place up there where we, where we process the wine and store it. We'll have wine and cheese, and you know, taught me how to eat the bread and wine and cheese together. And I was thinking the whole time, wait, but you're a Christian, but you're a Christian. Wait, wait I, what are you doing with wine? I don't understand. That was my first realization that, that everything isn't so black and white, that culturally people are different and what is considered a cult cultural piety or cultural um, uh, what's considered appropriate and and and, uh, and not even questioned as anything uh, of a moral value in in one culture in another culture is considered totally wrong so um, my wife wearing pants in some cultures would be totally wrong so when we go to a place we we always we always check what the cultural norms are, and, and we try to abide as much as possible. And we tell our kids even, um, we said, if you ever, because I, I've been to Thailand, and, and, um, and when, when I bring them money back from these countries, I said, when you treat money from Thailand, you never put the king's face down. That, that will put you in prison. You have to know the rules of the countries that you're going into. And so when they, when they handle money from Thailand, the bot, they... They never put it face down because they understand that it's really important to know cultures. It's not right or wrong, it's, but if it's wrong to them, you don't go around offending them. Because you'll, if you offend a Thai, you end up in jail, right? Mm -hmm. So it, that's how it's broadened my perspective. I realize that I'm, I'm no longer the egocentric American that I grew up to be. I'm, I'm somebody who thinks, what does the world that I'm going into do, and what can I do to make sure that I'm not going to become offensive to them? And I think that's kind of the biggest lesson I've I've learned yeah. in all my travels. Beautifully said. <laughs> so, this is the last question. Okay. And I feel like I could devote the entire I'm podcast. I'm sorry I'm talking too long. Not at okay. all, not at all. I, I'm just making sure to rush so your family doesn't Don't, have to wait no, too you're, long. you're fine, you're fine. Um, I feel like I, talking forever. I could devote the whole podcast just to your life. Oh. So this, this question, I don't know what's going to happen when I ask, but okay. can you tell me a good travel story? I imagine you have tons. <laughs> I have some, and that was the one I was worried about. Um, I was thinking about... Um, there have been travel stories. Um, eliminating it to one. I, I, um, 
I can, I'll tell you one in Japan. I got a lot of funny travel stories where we're having, see you, bye. Um, when um, living in a country has, and knowing what the norms are have been really important and where I failed to understand the norms because, not because I didn't check them out at first, but because I try so hard to speak the language of the country I'm in mm -hmm. that sometimes miscommunication happens. And so when I was in Japan, I wanted to walk, um, the first thing I wanted to do when I was in Japan is I wanted to walk the limestone cliffs. I love being outdoors and I was like, oh, I want to just get out there, but I could never find these, the entrances and every, all the Japanese people said, there's, there's trails everywhere, there's trails everywhere. And I was going, but I don't know how to find them. I said, look, write down what the trails say and I'm going to get out and find out about these trails. So they wrote down what it looked like in kanji and katakana. And that was, which is their, some of their writing um, system. And so I looked at the sign, I carried it with me, I got on my bike and rode around the Miura Peninsula and found a wooden sign kind of hidden in the bushes that looked like this. And I was like, that's it, that's it, I found it. So I right, take my bike into the, down along a creek up into a pathway and find these great hiking trails and they lead to all these different towns. So I was like, oh man, I'm getting good at this. I can read these Japanese signs like I could read the kanji. And, and um. And so I decided I'm going to take I'm going to take it a notch up. I'm going to do the temple hike. So all the different temples. I'm going to go all seven of them. And so I so I went back in the woods, and there was two Japanese houses back there, and then there was a temple that was built into the rocks, and uh, into the limestone cliffs. And I was like, I'm going to start here. This is the place. So there was a Japanese woman on her on her porch, not just sitting there rocking. She was sweeping something or whatever. And the, and there were there was a parking lot, and the and there were some ropes in rectangular um, laid down on the ground in rectangle. So I assumed that was for cars. And I asked the lady, "Is this where I park, park my Karuma?" And uh, and uh, she said. She said yes, and I said, is, is this a reserve spot, all this kind of stuff, and, or is anybody parked here right now, and, and, um, or, or can I park here, and she, she told me yes, I could do it, hi, hi, is it okay, dodge with this, and I said, okay, so I parked my car there, and, and, and tried to explain to her that I was going to hike to these seven temples, um, and so, but there's a communication there, because I'm not perfect at Japanese, and, and, you know, she was trying to make sense of what I was doing. She probably figured I was going to park there for a moment and go see this temple and then get in my car and leave. But I didn't. I spent all day out hiking the limestone twist from temple to temple. I got back and, um, and the police were there. And they were talking on the phone to the Department of Defense liaison um, in doing translations and about this fact that I had parked here. And um, apparently it was the priest's spot. There was no sign. And so um, so I was like, okay, I'm sorry. And so the police, the Department of Defense police wanted to talk to me and said, okay, you've really offended the, um, the, the priest and, and it's not good when you offend Japanese and their oh culture. And, and so you will have to... Um, um, you will have to ask forgiveness, and you will have to you will have to bring him a gomenasai gift. Um, gomenasai gift is a thing, and you'll have to make arrangements to meet with him because he's too upset right now about the fact he parked his thing. And so I was like, Oh God, okay, all right. So I I went to my work and I talked to my boss and I said, Okay, look, um, I have to go. I have to go back to this temple to to talk to the priest and bring him a, bring him a gift. So I'm going to need to get off early today. And so I did. I 
bought him some Japanese sake and and, um, and brought him some some good old homemade American food and thought that would be a good gift and went down there and learned all the Japanese for I'm so sorry and I made sure I bowed really deeply and everything to show ultimate respect and and um, and he would not accept my apology. Oh, no, he did take the wine though. <laughs> He would not accept my apology, and so, and he wouldn't accept the baked goods. I was just like, no, there's no way. And I thought, what? Uh, this is. I said, this is not the religion I want to be. In my religion, in Christianity, we accept and forgive, right? <laughs> not this one. So anyway, that was it. I was going. I can't believe him. It, did you learn you somehow did the apology wrong? Or? No, I didn't do the apology no, wrong. He, he was just. He just chose it. not to accept my apology. And and I mean, and I thought, did I? I, I knew. I, I made sure I bowed. I didn't bow like this. I bowed like this. You know, I made sure I bowed deeply, not just a head nod, and you know, all this kind of stuff. And told him how sorry I was in Japanese. And but he was still too upset. He just couldn't understand why someone would think it was okay to park in his spot all day long. And it turned out that the lady thought I was just going to park there for a moment. To, mm. So miscommunication happens, and I think that's um, one of. <laughs> It was a little bit mortifying for me, but a little funny because I'm driving down the road and going, I can't believe I'm driving someone to offer a Gomenesai gift to this priest in the woods. So anyway. It's such a good story. Thank you so much. <laughs> so much to Alanka. Thank you to Dana Boulay for her music. You can join our Kiva giving team by checking out the webpage or our Facebook page. And thank you for listening. <laughs>